Having spent 35 years in advocacy on behalf of patients with advanced illness, I feel like we've made a lot of progress, particularly around physical pain and suffering. But there had, in my mind, been a noticeable gap, and that was something to be really effective in relieving non-physical suffering. For people with advanced illness, debilitating anxiety and depression and existential dread is known to present and be very difficult to resolve. And that reality has been a huge gap in the palliative care toolbox for treating this patient population. Psilocybin has been shown again and again in rigorous clinical trials to provide immediate, substantial, and sustained relief from anxiety and depression. So that patients confronted with this diagnosis are able to be present and enjoy the life that they are living as they move forward in that illness, right up until the very end. And the stories that the patients tell about the relief that they receive from this therapy is so compelling. Patients with advanced cancer who come out of that therapy feeling at peace with where they're at with their illness and what lies ahead. And that changes that entire rest of their life, no matter how long it is. Welcome to season four of the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. Hi, everyone. I'm Lisa Laudico, and this is our last series of the season where we explore the potential benefits of a psychedelic medication called psilocybin to relieve the distress, anxiety, and depression that so many of us living with metastatic breast cancer can feel. It's a series that combined the scientific breakthroughs of Road to a Cure with the potentially transformative emotional work covered in our Grief and Loss and End of Life series. And along with co-host Linda Weatherby and Dr. Paula Jane, I'm excited to bring it to you today. In this short series, we're going to talk specifically about psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms and taking a standardized and synthetic dose within a therapeutic modality has already been tested and found effective in several clinical trials. It's a therapy that many scientists and patients called groundbreaking and we'll talk about why. But first, here's Paula to talk a little bit about the science. Like many people, I read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, with great interest, and I started to follow the data on psilocybin. In the late 1950s through the early 1970s, several hundred cancer patients participated in research showing that the use of psychedelic medicine, sometimes called hallucinogenic medicine, had been associated with decreases in anxiety, depression, fear of death, and even pain perception for many participants. The medication used at the time was mostly LSD, and unfortunately, as psychedelic use grew outside of the spiritual and cultural practices, 
where it was held with reference, and as it became associated with the 1960s countercultural movement, there was, somewhat predictably, a reactionary pushback and funding for the research was cut off. With this cut in funding, a very promising body of research ground to a halt, where it sat largely untouched for over three decades. Recognizing the great need for effective therapies to address the mental, emotional, and spiritual suffering of those of us facing advanced cancer, in 2005, researchers at UCLA tried again. They began a small pilot study using psilocybin instead of LSD. Multiple studies had found psilocybin to be safe and well-tolerated. Like LSD, it could cause lasting positive benefits, but with a lower likelihood of panic and paranoia. So the UCLA research team invited 12 metastatic cancer patients to receive a moderate dose of psilocybin in a safe and controlled setting. When the results were published in 2011, they echoed the findings of early literature showing that, at follow-up, metastatic patients experienced a sustained decrease in anxiety and depression after receiving psilocybin. In 2016, researchers from Johns Hopkins and NYU also published results from two small but groundbreaking clinical trials. These trials studied the effects of psilocybin-assisted therapy among cancer patients. Again, the studies found that the majority of patients experienced, and I quote, immediate, substantial, and sustained improvement, end quote, resulting in decreased anxiety and depression, and with increase in overall well-being and satisfaction with life. Even more astonishing, when the NYU researchers went back to surviving patients four and a half years later, they found that the majority were still experiencing less anxiety and depression in their everyday lives. So, like Linda and Lisa, I wanted to know more. But we all very quickly discovered that people living with metastatic cancer in the U.S. have almost no legal access to psilocybin-assisted therapy. Even though clinical trials on the use of psychedelics by cancer patients have repeatedly shown clinically and often statistically meaningful benefits. Thus, this series was born. The three of us are absolute beginners in this world, and we are still learning. But the existing data was so compelling, and our need is so great, that we hope this series provides an introduction. We felt it was important for our community to know that there's a therapy that has the potential to provide lasting support as we all work with the often intense grief, fear, and frankly, devastation that many of us feel after being diagnosed metastatic. So thank you for being with us. And here's Linda to give a preview of how the series will roll out. The series will be broken into three episodes. The first covers the emerging science for use of psilocybin in advanced cancer settings. During the second, we talk with two breast cancer patients who have experienced psilocybin-assisted therapy. And the third covers the fight for expanded legal access to psilocybin-assisted therapy for those of us who might benefit from it. You heard the voice of Katherine Tucker, the lawyer leading this legal battle in our opener, and we look forward to sharing more about this advocacy effort in our third episode. In today's episode, Paula and I speak with psychiatrist Dr. Bodhi Dunlop about why he found the data on psilocybin-assisted therapy to be compelling, his work on two clinical trials with psilocybin and depression, 
and about Emory University's upcoming pilot trial of psilocybin-assisted therapy in patients facing advanced illness, which will be led by Dr. Ali John Zarabi. Here's Paula and Dr. Dunlop. Thank you so much for being with us today. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah, so my name is Bodhi Dunlop. I'm a psychiatrist. I've been with Emory for 25 years now. I'm the director of the adult outpatient programs and the mood anxiety disorders research program here. And so I'm involved in the care, research, and the education aspects of psychiatry. Over the last uh, four years or so, I've really developed an interest in the role that psychedelics and similar medicines may have for improving the treatments we can provide for patients. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to that work on psychedelics? It's actually pretty interesting. One of my former residents, trainee psychiatrist working with me, Colin Reef, brought this to my attention. And we had some very long and heated discussions about should this even be a thing we're thinking about doing? And he was really convincing in getting me to look at the literature because all I could think of was the harms that could possibly occur. Because I see so many lives devastated by substance abuse, alcohol dependence. Mm -hmm. But he helped me understand that there are powerful forces at work and the transformative work that was done uh, back in the 60s and then followed through in the early 2000s really did open my eyes and made me think, I need to take another look at this. And since then, I've just uh, become increasingly impressed with patients that I've treated and in uh, reading the literature that this is really something that can change the way we are able to help patients. Absolutely. And so you have done some trials with psilocybin. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the work that you've done? Yeah. I was an investigator on the COMPASS trial which was the largest randomized clinical trial of psilocybin done to date. I enrolled 233 patients with treatment-resistant depression. So this is people with depression that haven't responded to multiple medications. And it's important to understand that when we administer psilocybin, it's never just by itself. It's within a psychotherapy program that the patient is participating in. We think of the psilocybin as like a catalyst for enabling people to make use of the psychotherapy in ways they otherwise might not be able to. So in that COMPASS trial, people were assigned to either 1, 10, or 25 milligrams of psilocybin. And the result was that the 25 milligram dose was clearly superior in improving depressive symptoms. And most impressively, 29% of the patients in the trial achieved remission by week three, which is remarkable not just for the speed of the response, but also the proportion, because although 29% might not seem a lot, for people who failed lots of medicines, that's a tremendous success rate. And a quarter of the patients had that sustained benefit out to 12 weeks. So that's been a real um, eye-opening experience for me to watch those patients progress through that treatment. And I'm now an investigator on a regular depression, not to treatment-resistant depression, something called the USONA trial of uh, patients with depression. We're doing a very similar kind of study. Yeah. And there's other populations that have found benefit from psilocybin as well. So people with PTSD and for our purposes today, people living with advanced cancer and dealing with that sort of distress. So could you tell us a little bit about why psilocybin-assisted therapy might be a potential interest to researchers who work with those with advanced cancers? 
Absolutely. Although the numbers enrolled in advanced cancer trials now are less than the depression trials, it's actually been better replicated. The effect size, the impact of the treatment is even bigger, we think, in these advanced cancer trials rather than depression. It's amazing. Let me just put it this way. It's amazing when you think about the complexity and number of treatments that doctors and nurses can bring to treating the bodily or physical aspects of cancer. It's amazing. But when you think about the person, the psyche inside going through that cancer experience and treatment, we don't have a whole lot to offer. And that's why I think there's so much excitement here. Advanced cancer diagnosis brings us to the real edge of the cusp of what it is to be human and the deepest fears of death and and endings. And how do we help people who struggle with the depression, anxiety, and so forth that emerges in the wake of that diagnosis? We have spiritual or pastoral counselors who can help many people make meaning of their lives reconnect them with a religious understanding or spiritual understanding of what they're going through. And and some people clearly get benefit, and I do not want to downplay the benefits that those therapists can bring, but many people nevertheless continue to struggle with thinking about what this diagnosis is going to mean for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of the common emotional affects that people bring in once we've been diagnosed with a kind of advanced illness? Yeah, I think there's a broad array. And what people experience depends on their lives, their situations. But there are some very common things. Probably the very most common thing is anxiety. It's that unknown. People can have anxiety about dying, what comes after dying, and then leaving others behind, leaving loved ones behind, as well as anxiety about being left behind themselves as their sickness progresses and they can't engage and participate in life and kind of being excluded. There's the anticipations of pain exhaustion, sickness that can come as cancer progresses. There's the anxiety about the treatments and the side effects. There's anxiety about what happens when the treatments stop. What does that mean? And so I think anxiety permeates and is probably the most common affect or emotional response. But there are many others, of course, depression or sadness, feeling a kind of grief, really just a sense of loss of what one had hoped to achieve or might have thought existed in the future. I think some people get angry, at least for a while, feeling the unfairness of the diagnosis, a sense of betrayal, especially if they've tried to live a healthy life and then they get the diagnosis. I think that's something. And then at uh, Emory, we're particularly interested in the demoralization. And I can tell you more about that if you'd like to know. Yeah. So I think if you could help us understand exactly how demoralization might play out in the lives of those of us who are living with incurable conditions. Yeah, we consider demoralization to be an existential syndrome, meaning getting at what is existence about and our existence about. And it really is incorporating aspects of helplessness, um, hopelessness, a loss of meaning. What's the point? Why am I making plans if this is just going to progress and take me over? We can conceptualize all this as existential distress, a turmoil around what is it all about, what am I facing, and just a general giving up. Demoralization is what's the point? I can't, I'm not going to make a difference. This is going to come anyway. A demoralized person might be able to experience joy when something good happens, unlike some depressed patients, but it's a pervasive sense that this is a fight I'm going to lose, so why bother? And that's Mm -hmm. um, such a common thing. Maybe 20 to 30% of people with advanced cancers. And 
that's what we're focused on with our work currently in psilocybin in this uh, population. Yeah. And so just to push on that a little bit, in some ways, as people get older, their peer group ages. And so you have a peer group that is dealing with watching end of life approaching. But for those of us who are diagnosed younger, we're, we're kind of alone in that. And so this question about is what I'm doing, does it matter? Seems almost in some ways a logical question to wrestle with. But what is it that would break out the 20 to 30% that would meet clinical definitions of demoralization? There is a scale that is used to measure these various aspects, and there's a threshold on that scale. Above a certain level is associated with more functional impairment, more problematic relationships, more withdrawal from life. The scores on this measure associate with those outcomes that we can all agree are not wanted or negative outcomes. Right. So with this kind of basket of really difficult emotions that might come up for all of us, how is it theorized and how is it being found that psilocybin can assist with that? Yeah, I think uh, we're still figuring that out. Yeah. Uh, If if you think about it, it's quite amazing because psilocybin has been used for thousands of years, right? Most famously by the native folks of uh, Central America in religious and spiritual processes. But yeah, we still don't really know how it works. Certainly we know chemically, yeah, psilocybin is related to uh, tryptophan and its structure. Tryptophan is an amino acid in our diet that we have to eat, and it gets converted in the body to serotonin. And most people know serotonin as a neurochemical that helps regulate one's mood. Psilocybin is structurally similar to tryptophan, and it binds to certain types of serotonin receptors that seem to be responsible for the effects it produces. But that's just at the biological level. Mm -hmm. And really what's most interesting, perhaps, are the broad array of psychological experiences that can occur during a session with psilocybin, especially with guided therapy, it's probably in those processes that the change or the transformation to to take people beyond the negative depression, anxiety, demoralization can occur. So could you walk us through what a psilocybin guided psychotherapy session is like for people who are in the clinical trials? Yeah, it's important to say before we do the dosing, there are at least three sessions of what we call preparation because I think the evidence is that people need to be prepared for what they're about to experience with psilocybin if it's going to be therapeutic. And so those preparatory sessions are about creating the mindset or what we just typically call the set of how one approaches it. And that gets to your mood, um, your intentions, your expectations, your openness to experience. What you're mentally bringing to the session is very important to prepare. And you've got to go in with trust, trust in the process and trust with your therapist guides. So those preparatory sessions are happening and there's several hours of therapy in there before you actually get to the dosing with the psilocybin. So that's what we call preparing those preparatory sessions. But then in the actual session itself, I think it varies a lot what people experience. There's this minority that don't experience a whole lot, actually, not a lot of physical reactivity or psychological reactivity. But that's a pretty small minority. Most people are having pretty intense or profound experiences that they feel to be immersive and meaningful. But it's a real broad array of things that can happen. And it's, it doesn't seem to be possible to predict who's going to have what kind of experience. 
with the dosing. I mean, and we can discuss them from more superficial levels of experience to the more deeper and meaningful ones. Yeah, let's do it. Let me ask one question first. You talked about the dose that you've used in the treatment-resistant depression study. And how does that correlate with some of the work that was done at like Johns Hopkins and NYU with people with advanced illness? Yeah, so let's just uh, back that up. So NYU and Johns Hopkins were leading the way in treating people with advanced usually cancer diagnoses, and the use of psilocybin to help them deal with the negative affects we've just talked about. And they built off work from before. Right, (laughs) yeah. But the, the general structure is the same in the sense that there's going to be preparatory sessions to get that mindset. A very important part of this is the setting, which is the location, the physical uh, circumstances in which the treatment is administered, which must be very comfortable. And then there's the dosing session in which therapy really isn't being done in the dosing session itself. The therapists are there as guides to help people stay grounded, not get overwhelmed, and to encourage them to just go with the process and try not to hide from affects or emotions or memories that come up, but just to let it flow and go with wherever it goes. And that's really what's happening. The therapists are not guiding people to, to think about certain things or focus on this or focus on that. It's just to be open to the experience and not try to shield yourself whenever you think something might be scary. So that's an all-day thing. That's an eight-hour session. Usually the psilocybin effects last five to six hours. And then afterwards, there are integration sessions, meaning in subsequent days. So that structure of preparatory sessions, an all-day dosing session with two therapists to make sure the the, the dosing goes okay and people stay with the process. And then the integration sessions afterward try to make sense of what has happened. That structure is the same, whether it's for end of life or for treating depression. So there really is a general respect for the power of psilocybin and how we need to shape the experience to make use of that power for therapeutic uses as opposed to having negative, bad, or just pleasure-seeking uses. So let's go back to something that you were saying that the guides are there not to conduct therapy during the session itself, but to encourage people to sit with and be present with whatever comes up. And so one misconception that I would imagine people could easily have when we talk about psychedelics and we talk about psilocybin is that it's just going to zone you out. It's going to be fun. It's going to be pleasurable. And could you talk a little bit more about why you might need a guide to encourage you to sit with whatever comes up? First of all, it's very unpredictable. And what people will experience differs across people. But there are some general things that we consistently see emerge, not necessarily in everybody, but in many people. Perhaps at the most superficial level, there's changes in one's sensory perception, complex imagery, seeing things in ways that are almost hallucinatory. So an old name for these drugs was hallucinogens because they produce commonly these kind of strange sensory perceptions, and sometimes synesthesias, where two senses kind of blend, like you can feel a color kind of Mm. thing. So those are sensory experiences that people have that are impressive and amazing, but don't seem to be associated with the transformative therapeutic benefit. But often early in the session is where the guides are most important, which is where people can encounter some very scary or fearful experiences. Not always, but what the brain is going to connect up 
in the session is unpredictable. And for people who are struggling with negative emotions, depression, anxiety, those may be part of this process. And memories may come up that are disturbing imagery. And a particularly disturbing thing is something called ego dissolution, or which is like a weakening of the sense of the self as an independent entity in the room. Like it's a blending or merging with the environment more broadly. And for some people, that can be scary. It feels overwhelming. It doesn't really have a logic. They lose their anchor points. They lose a rational understanding of what's going on. And for people who enter the session fearful of losing control, that can reinforce that sense. Mm-hmm. And so the guides are there to help them stay grounded, to let them know it's going to be okay. You're going to come through this and just keep going with it and stay with the experience that you're having. And many times patients after this, if they've gone through this kind of challenging experience, they'll say that unlike the psychiatric medicines the doctors prescribed for me, which kind of coat or smooth over my suffering, this was a journey I went through to understand, to get a deeper understanding of what and why and how I've come to this point. And that the going through the suffering was part of the therapeutic process. Mm-hmm. So that's where the guides are probably most important, helping people manage whatever anxiety about this totally new experience where there's a sense of things aren't controlled, things aren't rational, it's okay. And the guides help people through that. So that's another form of experience is that kind of ego dissolution that can happen to some people. But on the positive side, why did you have a question about? Oh, no, I was just actually going to share an example because I think if you're new to this, it might be really hard to understand what ego dissolution or ego death might be. And so my own brain introduced me to me. I had always said, I'm not really afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of the pain. I'm afraid of the loss of dignity and suffering and all of that. And one night I was falling asleep. I woke up into this dream of being out in space, and it was all just dark and endless. At first I could feel the edges of my own body and had a sense of being myself, but there was nothing concrete to hang on to. It was such a different sensation than I've ever experienced. Probably the closest example is when you're underwater and you can move in any direction you want, which I've always loved. It felt like freedom to me. But even there, you can feel the gentle pressure of the water surrounding you and holding you up. In this dream, there was nothing. It was dark and empty and quiet and vast. And I could feel my body start to lose its edges. And the person that I was just started to leak out into this immense darkness. And I panicked. And my fear just woke me right back up. And I sat straight up in bed and please forgive my language, but I said, F, I am afraid of death. And I had to laugh at myself, but I was sharing that with a friend and she said, oh, that sounds like ego death. You lose your touch points. You lose your sense of who you are as one being and you spread out and you feel yourself. Is this, would that fit with what? That sense of losing oneself or identity into a mass, into existence more broadly is what that's getting at. That's right. And I could definitely see why you would want a guide for that because yeah. it was not it was not a pleasant experience. It was terrifying, but it, it does seem like walking through that could be an essential part of psilocybin working. Does that sound right or only for some people? 
this is where the research needs to be further explored. Like what mm-hmm. are the components of the experience that are helpful or necessary for the therapeutic growth to occur? It seems likely that facing one's dissolution, which is you know, <laughs> what happens to the body during death eventually, is part of that whole psychological. Right. And there's some data to suggest that it, it, it may have a positive or negative impact on the therapeutic benefit of the session. And, and I should emphasize, not everybody goes through this. We're talking about this like it's this right. really big and scary thing. And for some people it is. But many people don't experience that or only have a very mild version of that. And it's typically followed by more positive experiences subsequently. This is where we see the mood elevation occurring, where people just have a kind of a joy or vibrancy, a sense of fulfillment or contentedness and gratitude. Just positive feelings are commonly reported as upwelling in the individual, sometimes rediscovering uh, memories from childhood that were positive and had been blocked out by just the perception of negative or pessimistic ideas. Just a reconnectedness to feeling alive and belonging. And all of these positive feelings are commonly part of the experience that people really appreciate. And related to that also is the reduction in pain sensation. So I don't think we should think about psilocybin and red compounds as necessarily analgesics, but they tend to reduce the focus of the pain or the importance of the pain. It's not like the pain has gone away, but people feel less controlled by the pain, less like the pain is the most important thing in their life or or the dominant thing. I I was reading an old paper called LSD and the Anguish of the Dying. And uh, it was an astonishing phrase in there where the author had written, when only death will end the pain, then pain can take on the meaning of death. And I really think there's a lot of power in understanding that. That's why the pain becomes so important. So what I might call salient to people suffering it in these end of life or advanced cancer situations, because it represents the end. And so the pain itself becomes important because it represents the end. And uh, by going through the process, and there's more to say about the psilocybin, but you put pain in its place, as opposed to having it be the meaning of your life. So for those who have, you know, done some work with Buddhism, is it basically the same story as the second arrow? So the first arrow is the actual physical pain. You're struck by the pain. You can't avoid it. It's in your body. You can't step out of it. But the second arrow is suffering and how we think about that pain. So are you basically saying psilocybin helps to recontextualize that pain or help you get a different perspective on it? Yes. I think the Accounts of people who've gone through this treatment very much support that conceptualization. That's powerful. (laughs) Other people get psychological insights that uh, they didn't have before, particularly in how they relate to the cancer itself. So cancer is a scary thing. Naturally, many people deny it or avoid thinking about it. And in going through the psilocybin experience, they transition to a place of more of acceptance or acknowledgement that it it's here, it's part of me, and they can more confidently embrace the challenge of living with it, what it's done to them, but yet still feel courageous enough to go on and um, integrate cancer into their life. It isn't their life, it's a part of their life. And so that ability to get past the resistance or anxious nature of thinking about having cancer is also enhanced by psilocybin treatment. Other people report being less preoccupied by a recurrence of cancer. Like, it's not like it's 
stop thinking about it altogether. They know it's there, but they're going to take the days they have and they to live a life in fear of recurrence and limiting and living in that stress is an insight that comes for many patients through psilocybin therapy where they realize this is not the helpful way to go through this. Yeah. And for us, it would be progression. So for metastatic population, that would be when will the cancer come back to life? Yeah. <laughs> Grow. Are relevant for demoralization. But yeah, so continuous progression and then, uh, or recurrence. Sometimes people are told they're, they're in remission, but a recurrence could occur. And then they can still end up demoralized because what will the, should I plan? It could mm-hmm. come back tomorrow. And so both of those are applicable. But then probably that people think about the most is that this mystical sense that presumably what the ancient peoples were using them for, that ability to connect with uh, a sense of unity of all things, that reverence or deep sense of truth, um, transcendence of time and space, really mystical things that about you know a third to a half of people seem to report who go through psilocybin. And that kind of unity experience is what really seems to stick with people later. Many people, most people who go through this report that it's like one of the top five experiences of their life as it gives them an understanding and connectedness to the world and a perspective on the world that they don't think they would have achieved otherwise. So that's that mystical experience. And there is a fair bit of data indicating that the greater the level of mystical experience that occurs, the greater the reduction in depression and the better the improvement in people facing advanced cancer. So do you need to be religious or spiritual walking in? Could an atheist walk in and have this kind of experience? Oh, I think so, definitely. I think there are accounts when people are debriefed afterwards. Some will say, I've never been religious and I don't consider myself a particularly spiritual person. And yet they come away with a feeling of understanding or connectedness to the world. So I do think spiritual is the best term for it because it's not specific. It's not denominational. Right. Yeah. Like a sense that one is part of the world and that, that there's more to our lives than just the physical reality. And that upon facing death, that is, it is not an empty void out there after you die, a lonely, empty, cold space. (laughs) Yep. It's, it's more of a sense of you remain connected to the world in some way or another. And so this is ability to reconcile with death. And I think that's really when psilocybin therapy for this population has been helpful, is when people are reconciled to the fact of their death. We all are aware at a cognitive level we're going to die. Advanced cancer puts it front and center. And just as you say, you think you understand, you think you know how you're going to approach it, but you never know until you're there. And uh, for people who really get stuck, either with the fact of death or the pain that represents death, psilocybin therapy can often lead to a reconciliation and acceptance, that the lack of which has caused so much distress. It's so incredibly powerful. The follow-up question I want to ask at this point is, how can patients get more access to it? And of course, the answer is the trials. If you want to do it legally and, and safely, from what I understand, Emory is planning a pilot trial through their palliative care setting. Are you able to share with us a little bit about that trial? Oh, I can share a lot. Yeah. Oh, please do. <laughs> so palliative care, it's not a term that many people are familiar with, unless they're unfortunately having to deal with palliative care, is the care of people who 
with a focus of reducing suffering and improving well-being for those facing chronic or life-threatening conditions. We have an excellent palliative care team at Emory, and our study is just about to start. I think we're within a month of starting to enroll our first patients. It's being led by Dr. Ali John Zarabi, who leads our palliative care research team for this, but he's got a team of people working with him in this area. And what we're focusing on are is in people with cancer who also have chronic pain and who are demoralized. We really think that pain demoralization intersection is important. And our trial is a pilot trial. We're just going to do about 10 patients just to evaluate the feasibility of doing this work in this population. These people often have multiple medical problems and medications that they're taking that complicate the use of psilocybin. We can't use it willy-nilly. We have to be thoughtful about who we can give it to. So really, this is about establishing whether or not we can do this work and expand it into a larger clinical trial. But we've developed a palliative care-focused form of the psychotherapy. We're still going to have those preparatory sessions, a dosing session, and subsequent integration sessions where we try to pull together the meaning of the experience of being under psilocybin. The trial is open label, and that means that there's no comparator arm. Everybody gets psilocybin. There's no placebo. We're going to use the standard dose. And uh, our palliative care therapy that we're delivering is a combination with a PhD-level psychotherapist and a spiritual counselor, spiritual health counselor. So that's going to be our dyad. And we think that's a really important advance as well. It's not just about the psilocybin. It's about bringing both of those perspectives to the therapy that's being uh, administered. So yeah, we're very excited to be starting this up and we're gonna be looking for how much can we improve the demoralization of people? How much do their relationships improve? How much less pain medicine? Many different things we're looking at to see what are the effects this treatment can have? What can we focus on? And again, doing a larger trial, helping bring evidence to the FDA to realize this intervention has power for people facing advanced cancer. And the more trials we can do like that, the better evidence base we'll build. If, the, if what's been done before holds up, we're going to see very clear, strong benefits of this treatment. And that's how we're going to ultimately get more access for people. But this raised one question for me with the pilot study. Are you um, sourcing from a, a specific place or... So USOMA is a nonprofit organization funded by a financier who just wants to see this, these therapies have a chance at uh, succeeding. And so they're a nonprofit, and the, but they are making their psilocybin available to researchers who submit their protocols and get the appropriate regulatory approvals. And so that's who we're getting it from for that, the USOMA okay. group in Wisconsin. We've heard just about different dose levels, like a heroic dose. And for the TRD study, it sounded like the maximum dose was 25 25 milligrams. And so is that the same dose that you would use here? Yes, it is. The the palliative trial will use the 25 milligram dose. The, The trials at Johns Hopkins and NYU use roughly 20 to 30 milligrams as well. Higher than that is hard to tolerate. It's not clear it makes more benefit. I don't really understand this concept of heroic dosing. I think the point is to have the experience and the 25 milligram dose for most people is sufficient to induce that psychological experience that can enable the material to be worked on in the integrative sessions.
That's helpful. Linda, you had a question? I wonder, since these are patients who are dealing with advanced illness or potentially metastatic cancers, is there anything in the pre-qualification area around conflicts with other medications or potential risks involved with being on chemos and contraindications and side effects during the trip is the other piece of that? Yeah, the biggest, probably most common one is nausea, occasionally vomiting, but it's usually just at the beginning of the session, really, do people continue to have significant nausea through the entire dosing period. And some people get a little short of breath or headache feelings, but really pretty mild and short-lived really seems to be, for the most part, tolerated. Mm-hmm. Psilocybin can produce some cardiovascular demand, increase heart rate, increase blood pressure. So people with significant cardiac conditions shouldn't probably do it at this stage uh, okay. of, of the research. And then people who have metastases in the brain or CNS infections, we really don't know what would happen giving psilocybin to someone who has an active disease process going on in the brain. So that would be another major thing to think about. But other than that, it's pretty well tolerated overall. It's really not that dangerous. It does have the possibility of having drug interactions. We do uh, need people to come off serotonin medications, which is commonly their antidepressants. And that was one of the biggest challenges in the treatment-resistant depression studies. And I I should also mention that currently we're not enrolling people who have, say, a, a family history of a psychotic disorder or bipolar disorder where the medication... Who knows? Might, and this is why I talk about being extra cautious, might trigger a process that would otherwise not have occurred. And we don't want to induce harm in people like that. One thing we, we're pretty sure about is people who have high levels of paranoia should not get this treatment. You have to come into these treatments with trust, openness, and people who come in with high levels of suspiciousness or paranoia, inability to trust, probably will not do well with suicide. Okay. So that was one thing I was going to ask outside of diagnosis, which is just kind of like people fitting in a bucket. Does the research know yet if there are character traits that are known to impact the efficacy? Does it take a certain personality type or somebody who's done the work to be able to sit with something that's upsetting to get to the other side of it? Does that seem to matter with psilocybin or is psilocybin kind of a great equalizer? I don't think we know the answer to that. And that's yeah. what I'm saying about. We need to better understand the characteristics, psychological, physical, that contribute to people's benefiting or not benefiting or tolerating, not tolerating the treatment. As I say, paranoia is a bad thing. And, and that yeah. won't be well. People who have perhaps a real instability of emotional regulation probably are not going to be good for these treatments. And that's the challenge when we're doing these trials and designing them. We want to be as open as possible, but we don't want a trial to be harmed by enrolling patients who we have suspicion for that won't do well. But right. it's tricky because we don't really know they won't do well, but it's so much <laughs> effort to put a trial together. Do you want to take the risk of allowing people in who we think this probably isn't going to go so well? It runs a significant risk of not going so well. So that's the balance in trying to expand this evidence base. And I think we have to be cautious initially. And as we progress, we can expand and expand and expand and see uh, better who is most appropriate and least appropriate for this invention. But that's really the main thing in terms of what we're thinking about who who would be excluded. It's not a long list of reasons people couldn't participate. On the brain meds piece, I am engaged in some brain meds advocacy, and I guess this is maybe a plug to 
hopefully include patients who have treated brain mets. Often patients with brain mets are just excluded across the board for clinical trials. And there's a sizable effort underway to try and revise that so that patients who are treated and stable at a minimum could retain their options for clinical trials. So just a side note there, and I'm a patient with a history of brain mets, so I I resonate with that. Yeah, I completely understand that. And I think it it can be made on a case-by-case basis. The challenge is if something goes wrong in a clinical trial, there's a big investigation, like what's going on. And so there's a significant downside risk. And that's why I say early on, as we develop these trials, we we have to be a little more cautious. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is a pilot. Is Emory interested in doing a full, you know, a larger scale trial? Oh, we're definitely thinking about it. I think there's a great groundswell across specialties from palliative care, spiritual health, psychiatry, oncology to focus on this. This really does. Mm-hmm. I don't, I've been doing re- clinical trials for 20 years. It's difficult for me to get really excited about. I've seen many exciting things come and go away right. and to deliver on the promise. But this really seems different to me. So I think there's a general sense that this is going to be a transformative type of change to medicine and how we approach the dying process. Like it really could grow into something very substantial if this early evidence is held up in larger trials. So yes, absolutely, we're thinking of going forward with a larger trial. That will have to be a randomized control trial. That will have to be a comparator condition. Sometimes we can do crossover designs where you get randomized to the non-psilocybin or psilocybin first. And after a period of several weeks to a couple months, we then dose with the opposite. So everybody would have a chance to, you know, so that kind of design seems very appealing. And that's what others have used as well in this area. Yeah, we're thinking a lot about that. But we first want to make sure we we nail down the therapy. It's going to be evaluation of right. what aspects of the therapy are working. What do we need to tweak? What other aspects we've got to have social workers involved? Do we need more? Do we need less? What, what's making the difference for people? Mm-hmm. That's what we're really going to be trying to understand. I want to come back because I think it's rare to hear a scientist or a researcher talk about something as transformative. So could you talk a little bit more about why there's such a groundswell with this? How does it compare with what's happening now? Why are people so excited about the possibility of psilocybin-assisted therapy? Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist. So I'm going to start in psychiatry and then I'll move to palliative care. Sure. Um, Current treatment with psychiatric medications is not very satisfying. <laughs> Anybody that, uh, Thank you, know, you for being honest. <laughs> um, I recommend therapy first for nearly everybody. And for some people, therapy alone is transformative. I went through my own therapy. I felt it mm-hmm. transformed me in important ways. Therapy alone can transform you. You don't have to do it with a drug. But there are people who get stuck. And, and despite therapy, they still can't get there. But the reason I say it's transformative is because it's a different model of care. We see people who get better after psilocybin treatment and stay well. Instead of taking a pill every day, they've taken a single dose of psilocybin on one day, done the therapeutic work, and then remain well. And some go back on medicines for some aspects. Maybe they need some anxiety control. Maybe they need their ADHD medicine, whatever. But the depression for many, it seems to be, we'll have to see what the long-term studies show, but 
in the sample that I treated, there's a sustained duration of wellness. Yes. What do people tend to find? How are their everyday lives different after they've been to this experience? We are currently following these people out to a year, but the study's new enough. We're still right. following them out. But what people are saying is that it's not too different from what we've seen in the palliative care world or the, the advanced cancer work. If there's an acceptance. There's a presence in the everyday. There's an unwillingness to let stressors dominate, to, mm-hmm. to just go to the stress place. Right. Step back. I'm not going to let that stuff build up. I'm going to try to stay focused in the moment. It's just like the negative loses its salience or power to drive one's focus. And I've seen this, especially in the younger people that have done the treatment. In the TRD patients we treated who were older, whose depression has been present all their lives, Mm -hmm. at least in my sample, I didn't see as much of a sustained benefit. It's like the brain went back into its long-standing pattern. Yeah. But I think it's the people who have been stuck in trains of thought for so long. Those are the folks that I think are going to be the ones we really going to have to keep an eye on in these treatments because they may need more sessions or they may need other sessions altogether. But when we're talking about advanced cancer, we're not talking about people who've been like living in terrible fear of death all their lives. Right. It's a change that's been thrust upon them. And I think that because it's not so well railroaded into the brain, those tracks just aren't so deeply embedded in the brain, that the plasticity, the changes in connections in the brain that occur with psilocybin can actually have effect and take hold and have lasting benefit. And that's what I mean by transformative. Because instead of taking your pill every day, you've gone through a therapy process, taken one pill of psilocybin, and you are well for a real substantial period of time. That's why I say it's transformative. In palliative care, we're talking about being able to address the problem that is so hard to address, which is the facing of one's death. And that's why I think it's transformative. So many people suffer with all everything we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And we might be able to show that this treatment reduces that suffering, that, right. that mental suffering that so many people say is worse than the physical suffering. If we could alleviate that, or at least take the intense edge off that. That's a brand new thing. Helping people approach death in a way that is not filled with fear and avoidance, but rather acceptance and connectedness. I think that's why I say it's transformative. As I say, there are existing therapies that people do, and spiritual or otherwise, that are very helpful for them in that. But there are some people who just get stuck. And if we can move them through that to the point of acceptance, and connectedness, then we've really done something. Yes. We've talked to quite a few people for this episode, and some of them have talked about it's just an end-of-life benefit. But the fact is, for those of us who are metastatic, some of us are fortunate enough to get to live for a number of years before we progress to the very end of our life. But the entire time that we are living, we know it's coming. And so it's it's an odd situation, right? You, I look pretty healthy overall. People wouldn't look at me and know that I was metastatic, but I'm aware my death is coming decades earlier than I would have expected it to. And what I found so compelling about the psilocybin literature is that if I could bring peace into those days that I have for all of us that are metastatic, if we can have more peace, 
more groundedness, more acceptance in the time that we have, there's no way to articulate the value of a therapy like that. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Thank you very much for saying that because that is the other piece of this is the living with uncertainty. Because there was just a trial published a couple of years ago looking at a long-term HIV patients and how they've lived with this sense of when is it going to flare up right. and actually take me? And that's much the same as living with metastatic cancer and the ability to suppress the cancer for an indeterminate duration. How do you make the most of the days you have left? How do you let go of the anxiety, the dread? How do you engage in today and make the most? And, and that's also just not for the person. It's all their loved ones that they connect with, all those relationships. Definitely. If you think about how much is spent in the very last days of someone's life in an ICU setting and for people with very little likelihood of physically recovering compared to what the cost this would be and the months to years of additional quality life experience, it seems like this should be, that's why I say it's transformative. It really does offer a possibility of enhancing life for many people for many years, even in the face of a negative prognosis. Yes. I would say there's a, a cost analysis argument to be made for psilocybin. If you're a funder, if you're the U.S. government, we don't have a closed healthcare system, so there's not a, a benefit to them directly. But yes, I think if we want to make this a more compelling argument, someone needs to do a cost analysis of what is saved. But uh, but going well, this quality of life years, you know, we have a metric, yeah. and if you can, if this can do what we think it can do, but anyway, yeah, I don't like talking about money. No, I agree. <laughs> going back to what you said for a second about it's not just the person's wellness, but the relationships in their lives. I find that so compelling. My hope is that I don't want to have to die young. I don't get a choice about that. But I hope that me walking through this experience might help the people in my life, my loved ones, my family, my nieces, my nephew, not be as afraid of death. If there's a treatment that can help me be more grounded, if I'm more accepting, if I'm more at peace, if I can pass that benefit on to the people who interact with me, that's just an extra bonus, a ripple effect, as it were, of a single treatment. So, Yeah, absolutely. And you, you can think more, just to think more broadly. Right. Like it, it opens up discussion of death in the culture in a way that we really don't talk about much. Yeah. And if you have more people just going through the experience and reaching a place of acceptance and being willing to talk about it like you are, it's tremendous that death loses its fearful hold over us. I do believe you're right that, that the more the culture can accept that this is the process and we can talk about it, the less fear people will bring to it in the end. The more people have faith that the death of the body is not the same as the passing of the spirit. I think it really could have broad ripple effects as you described. Thank you for joining our new series on psilocybin-assisted therapy. We hope it's provided some useful information about the potential it holds to help heal the distress that many of us naturally carry as we live with a metastatic diagnosis. We ended the interview with Dr. Dunlop by asking how more of us can gain legal access. Take a listen to what he has to say. Yeah, so I'll ask a hard question. There's going to be a lot of people listening to this episode who after hearing all this, they want this. Of course they want this, right? And <laughs> I, I'm asking a question I know the answer to, but 
what are the paths for them? What options do they have? If they don't happen to be one of the 10 people that get to be in this trial, are there other pathways for them that are legal and safe? Not in the United States. Right. So you're not going to be able to legally do this treatment in the United States outside of a clinical trial setting. These are Schedule 1 substances. That's how the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, has classified them. There are many people, including prominent researchers such as Dr. Matthew Johnson at Johns Hopkins, who disagree with how the DEA currently classifies psilocybin. Their disagreement is based on both the established and the emerging body of data demonstrating the efficacy and safety of psilocybin. In our third episode in this series, we'll explore two current legal efforts seeking to expand access to people like us. One of those efforts is asking the DEN to reclassify psilocybin to a lower schedule. That would make it easier for researchers to conduct clinical trials testing psilocybin. But first, in our next episode, we'll talk to two women with breast cancer who did have legal access to psilocybin-assisted therapy, one through a clinical trial at Johns Hopkins and one through the waiver process in Canada, facilitated by the organization Therasil. As a side note, this series was delayed because it was so hard for us to find people with breast cancer who had legal access to psilocybin. We hope you'll join us as we listen to their experiences. Here's a quick preview. I have struggled with depression for a few years before my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And living in the present moment, it's so hard to do when you don't have really much desire to be in the present moment because it's so dark. But going through this process and having this trip is like laying a fresh layer of snow. You know, you're not stuck in the tracks anymore and ruminating on these little things, you know, ruminating on the prognosis. Mm-hmm. You can get so stuck and with a diagnosis. You're stuck on the stats and everything that that means. You're stuck on the side effects. And that's, you know, that's depression. It's, it's getting stuck in these patterns. And the magic in the plant medicine is that you are just kind of lifted out of that space and lifted out of the patterns that you've been doing over and over again. And you're given new perspective and you're able to finally action these steps forward based on what's come up for you during the trip. The plant medicine can kind of push you forward finally to make these changes that you know you've needed forever. This podcast was produced by Dr. Paula Jane, Linda Weatherby, and myself, Lisa Laudico. This NBC and Psilocybin series benefits from original music and expert sound design by Connor Kinsley. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of Our NBC Life Wherever you get your podcasts, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and look for a new episode every week. 
Check out our blog and our full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.